Hello and welcome to season 22 of the Strengthening the Soul of Your Leadership podcast. I am your host, Ruth Haley Barton, and we are focusing in this season on the deepest place, the formation of hope in our journeys of suffering. And we're doing that with Dr. Kurt Thompson, who is a psychiatrist, he is a speaker, and he's an author. And in his writings and in his speakings, he connects our intrinsic desires to be known with a need to tell truer stories about ourselves and how to form deeper relationships around our stories and how to allow the telling of our stories to be integrative in our in our lives. And so Kurt's been a friend of the Transforming Center for a long time. We. Uh, Um, interact with his writings, particularly The Soul of Shame and The Anatomy of the Soul in our transforming community experiences. And then also he was with us for an alumni retreat in 2017, where he presented to us on the topic of knowing and being known, neuroscience and the renewing of the mind. And it was really a seminal experience for us, uh, for those of us who are alums of the transforming community experience. And so Kurt and I have had a a real friendship over the years. And so this uh, season for us is just a continuation of the conversations that we have integrating our psychology, our spirituality, and our embodiment, our life in our body. So welcome, Kurt. So glad to be back with you for the next conversation. My goodness, Ruth, it's so great to be back. And since our last conversation, I have a question for you. Okay. All right. Uh, You know, you always come with really beautiful questions for me. And, you know, uh, where I find myself is the the questions that have been so poignant we're going to talk about. I'm really curious about where you find yourself, both personally and also institutionally in, in the Transforming Center. What's What's your experience currently such that, for instance, this topic of suffering in general, and then we'll get to some more of the detailed mm-hmm. pieces that we're talking about, where is this playing a role in the lives of the people that you are shepherding and in your own life. I'd love to hear more about that. I'd love for mm-hmm. our listeners to hear more about that. Yeah. Well, there's obviously at least two two layers for what you're asking, and that is one's personal life and then also one's life in leadership. And I, mm. I'm, I feel like both of those really strongly as it has to do with the topic that we're discussing. Personally, the last couple of years and 2023 in particular have been hard years mm. for me personally that have had some grief, loss, and suffering within mm. them. Mm. And so I have been really, first of all, blessed to have a therapist who can witness that with me and for me. And I've seen Mm. more than ever how important it is to have somebody who can be a witness. Um, Mm. That sometimes Mm. it doesn't seem like we've done much of anything in the session except me just sort of, Mm. (laughs) you know, Mm. coming out with it all. But her um, continuing to ask me questions that uh, help me to see myself and my suffering for what it is mm. and also let me know strongly that she's seeing me. Mm. Mm. And and so I leave not really knowing what happened that was so beneficial to me, but knowing that the weight has lifted, mm. knowing that I it doesn't feel, feel like such a dark morass when mm. a skilled person has witnessed these things with me um, and asked me good questions that help me to... Um, be more in touch with it versus dismissing it Mm. and saying, oh, Mm. it's not that big of a deal. Mm. I think in Christian circles, we do have this sort of vein of, you know, buck up. You know, it's not that bad. You should be able to endure this. You know, it's not, it's really not that big of a deal. I think we Mm. do that to each other a lot. And I think the right kind of witness can um, be more helpful than we could ever imagine. 
Okay, I'm going to interrupt you for just a second. Mm-hmm. I'm really glad to hear that you have someone who has held this mm-hmm. with you. Yeah, thank you. And for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Well, and I find myself being grateful, you know, to have the resources that I do and, and mm-hmm. even in and through this podcast season, hoping that others really avail themselves of, of true resources mm-hmm. versus mm-hmm. just keeping it all inside and walking in isolation, which is one of the, your strong messages. Um, so, so thank you for that. And I think that that's important for us to say to people as leaders that a leader is always functioning on at least both of those levels. Mm-hmm. A leader is all, all, always carrying their own pain and their own suffering. Mm-hmm. And they're also always being present to other people's pain and suffering. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. then they're, you know, they're also trying to steward whatever God has given them to steward in, in their leadership environment. And, and that is its own suffering, I will say. Right. Well, but, gonna, and I, I have another yeah. question for you then. Mm-hmm. What's, what's your experience of what what do you witness in leaders in terms of their awareness of their mm-hmm. own suffering well i don't i don't think they're willing this is why this is this season is already turning out to be so powerful from a leadership standpoint is that i think oftentimes leaders see themselves as soldiers as huh. good soldiers that are supposed to be able to soldier on and they're supposed to be able to do better than everybody else with the things that cause human beings to suffer. Uh-huh. Um, and so, and I think they also really underestimate the power and the weight of having both your personal suffering pr- plus the suffering that comes in and through one's leadership. Mm-hmm. To be a leader is by definition to open oneself up to a level of suffering that you would not be experiencing if you weren't leading. Then that right. is just really important to say that right. leadership by definition opens us to suffering that would not come to us if we had not chosen to step up into leadership. So leaders are always carrying this double whammy of their personal suffering and the suffering that comes in and through their leadership both what they're present to like you're asking the question what do you see in leaders i'm always present to a lot of suffering that has to do with what leaders are suffering but then there's that added layer of trying so hard to lead something and to lead it with integrity and the pain that happens when it all falls apart or when you can't make it what you thought it could be or should be it's it's so layered for leaders in a different way than it is for those who are not in leadership Okay, so I just want to pause. I just want to pause yeah. our process for a second. <laughs> yeah. Because if you and I were tag teaming in a confessional community yeah. right now with a group with a group of leaders, mm-hmm. I would want to pause the process and I would want to ask what are people feeling in the room? Yeah. Yeah. Because what I've just heard you say is so crucially important for people to hear. Mm-hmm. And and it's not just that they've heard information. This is they've heard Ruth speak these things. Someone who knows. And I would guess that there would be people in the room who would be saying, oh, my gosh, I'm I'm someone is telling the story, uh, telling my story that I Mm -hmm. have not yet been willing to tell. And I'm feeling things like Mm -hmm. like I would easily imagine the tears to be flowing in the room. I would easily imagine Mm -hmm. people feeling things in their bodies. Yeah, because my guess is that leaders, you know, they're not forewarned of this. You know, they're not told in advance, oh, here's the no. side effects. Mm-hmm. Here are the side effects. Yeah, it's just, so it strikes me as really crucially important what you're saying, that uh, in, in particular for leaders, that they rewind the tape of this, of this episode mm-hmm. and just listen to the words that you had to say and imagine what it would be like to be sitting in the room with Ruth 
and having her look at you while you're looking at her while she holds the suffering that you haven't named. Mm -hmm. In the same way that you're talking about how important it is that you have had your therapist hold it for you, Mm -hmm. we each need somebody who's going to hold that for us. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And give permission, like, to say, yes, I have my own personal sufferings, and I have the suffering of the people that I'm companioning in my ministry, and then I also have the suffering that leadership is always, that is always going to be a part and parcel of leadership, and that that's happening in my life. All That is what I'm carrying in life. Yeah, right. And I, and I can, and I really actually better name this. Right. Otherwise, it's going to become too much. Right. We're not going to be able to hold it and carry it if we don't give ourselves permission to acknowledge these realities. Right. right. Absolutely. So, well, thank I think that, you. that just helps me. I mean, that, that also helps me have an, an even deeper sense of where our conversation can go. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Well, wow. Okay. (laughs) How do we get ourselves back from that? (laughs) Yeah, so we will keep moving in and out of the the deep waters of our own lives and experiences. And then also some of the foundational truths that your book offer us that that actually give us a place to stand. And that's a metaphor that you use in your book Mm -hmm. is Mm -hmm. the grace in which we stand. I want to give us I want to give us a strong, firm, wide place to stand. And one of the things that you do in your book that's so impactful and powerful is that you do integrate your knowledge of psychology and the brain and all of that into this topic of suffering. And you use some really big psychological terms like attachment. And we talk about attachment and attunement in our own transforming community experience, but many of our listeners might not have either heard of those phrases or actually integrated them into their spiritual life. Mm -hmm. Uh, You also talk about social engagement system. And then finally, you do talk about internal family systems, which I think some of us are familiar with that. Many of those listening might be familiar with internal family systems, but I'd like to integrate it strongly into this theme, into Mm -hmm. our spirituality in general, but also into this theme of suffering Mm -hmm. that forms hope, durable hope Mm -hmm. within Mm -hmm. us. So, oh, I hate to like put you on the spot like this, but could you teach us for a few minutes about some of these concepts and why they matter to us? Well, I think we can can start with the whole notion of attachment because that's what human beings start with but by attachment mm-hmm. we're really taught an attachment research really looks at the way that human beings regulate themselves i learn as a newborn and an infant and a toddler i learn how to regulate my emotional distress by virtue of attaching to another human attachment figure the baby comes into the world the parent responds to that child in a particular way for our, our parents in the world who are our parents who are, are, aren't listening you know we know that we, if you have more than one child you have more than one way of interacting with those children because they have different temperaments those children then will tend to look to you to attach to you to help themselves they're going to try to regulate themselves by using your brain mm. and we grow in this way we grow to be relatively healthy or unhealthy human beings depending on how we attach to others. There's a whole body of research that begins with this, with John Bowlby and Mary Ainsworth, and this goes on and on. But suffice to say that there's nothing that we do in the world that is not involved, that has to do with human beings, whether you're in the grocery checkout line or whether you're you know, having an argument with your spouse or whether you're having to uh, you know, in, encounter an employee or an employer 
if you're a coach, if you're a student, there's no interaction that we have that does not involve certain forms of attachment. In what way am I sensing in the world that I can interact with this person in a way that will enable me to feel comfortable and confident in doing my work in the world? I hope that makes sense. Mm -hmm. That we're borrowing somebody else's brain as a way to help me be okay in the world. This is what we do with newborns. They can't regulate themselves. Instead, they need to draw on what the other adult gives to them. And in some way, shape, or form, we are always doing that in greater or lesser degrees with other people. Now, one of the ways that we engage attachment is through the process of attunement. We pay attention to what another person might be thinking or feeling. And my capacity to attune to that, my capacity to do that has everything to do with whether or not I have grown up in an environment and have experienced an environment in which others have been attuned to me. Attunement isn't like breathing, like either I just come out of the womb and I just do it. Attunement is something that I have to do on purpose. I have to be curious about what someone else might be thinking or feeling. I'm going to attune to that. Many of us are walking around on the earth on autopilot. We are not very consciously attuning to or being curious about what is that person feeling? What is that person thinking? Because I'm too busy just trying to get through my day on my own. And that's largely often because someone else hasn't attuned to me. Attunement then becomes a crucial part of how we display our attachment. Because parents are attuning to their children who grow up to be adults, who attune to their children and to their colleagues and so forth and so on. When we get to the notion of a social engagement system, this is crucially important. It involves the process of attachment. It involves attunement. What we mean by the social engagement system is that every baby that is born comes into the world with a certain set of neurons in their brain that their job is to help them navigate the world socially with others. And that social engagement system helps them have an awareness of other people in the world, how to respond to other people emotionally, behaviorally, so forth and so on. And that social engagement system is how I help regulate my distressing emotional states. There are many children who grow up in the world whose parents aren't paying attention to them, are not attuning to them. Yes, they change their diaper. Yes, they feed them and so forth. But they may not be curious about what they feel, what they think, what's going on in their mind. Those are kids whose social engagement system does not necessarily get activated in a way that helps them navigate the attachment process. We like to say that what we are doing as human beings is that we are one, I, like as a human being, I am one big emotion regulation machine. Mm. All day, every day, that's what I'm doing. I'm mm -hmm. regulating my affect, my emotional states. And when I am practicing doing that in a what we call a co-regulatory process, I'm borrowing somebody else's brain to help me do that. That helps me what we call widen my capacity to regulate my distressing emotion. This is why 
we would hope that a child who is 15 months of age who might fall down in Safeway and have a tantrum is not falling down in Safeway when they're 15 years old (laughs) and having a tantrum Mm -hmm. because they have learned to regulate their emotional states because they have been effectively able to borrow somebody else's brain along the way. That social engagement system is strengthened and activated in this way. For many of us, where emotion was never really talked about or dealt with directly, or like for me, like I grew up in a house where, you know, we like to say that uh, in our house, we like to say, my father was not an angry guy. He wasn't. He was not an angry man. And that's because everybody was working so hard not to piss him off. (laughs) So the whole system, the whole system was working together to produce that non-angry man. (laughs) Right, right. And so we said like, so I grew up, for instance, I grew up being afraid of anger. Mm -hmm. I grew up like it was, it, it felt dangerous to me. And so my bandwidth for anger was very narrow. And it wasn't until I got married that I learned, oh, people can be angry and they're still like they're 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 you know they're not going to kill you they're not going to leave the house they're not going to leave there they're just angry and you have to have practice experiencing that so that your window can widen we call this a window of tolerance how much i can tolerate that social engagement system is in place in order to help us widen that window of tolerance so that i can co-regulate all of these different emotional states Mm -hmm. together And so that's attachment, that's attunement, that's the social engagement system very, very briefly. Lastly, when we talk about internal family systems, we're really addressing a particular way of imagining the way our interior life works. Back in the 1980s, a psychologist, Richard Schwartz, developed this way of imagining who we are as people. And it makes a ton of sense. If you think about it, each of us, we are, if we we come into the world and we are a son or a daughter, we might be a brother or a sister, we might be a father or a mother, we might have the part of us that is funny, the part of us that is angry, the part of us that is ashamed, the part of us that is critical. We have all these different features of who we are. We have been married, my wife and I, we've been married for 37 and a half years. We've been married for a couple of years. We would go to my family for the holidays. Then we would come home and she would say, Phyllis would say, you know, that was a really lovely visit. But I have to tell you, while we were there, this guy showed up and he looked like you and he talked like you. But for some reason, he was only about 13. (laughs) And I'm like, what? What are you like? I'm like, I'm the psychiatric resident Mm -hmm. who's right. Who's to whom she's saying these things. Mm hmm. And she's like, yeah, I don't know what happened. You get around your older brothers that are mm-hmm. were 18, 16, and 11 years older than me and all their families. And it's like, I become a kid. This part of me comes into the room that I don't even know is in existence for most of my life. And so we find that the, each of us, Schwartz would say, each of us houses a family of parts of us. And there are a couple of resources for this that I think that are really helpful. Uh, my friend Allison Cook and Kimberly Miller, my two friends, wrote a book called Boundaries for Your Soul, which is a lovely treatise on this whole piece from a Christian anthropological perspective. 
It's a really lovely piece, Boundaries for Your Soul. And that's a really great resource. And it is a way to introduce people to this notion. And what's so beautiful about it is this. Um, How many times do we think to ourselves, I'm such a failure. I'm an angry person. I'm not good at this. I'm bad at this. We make statements that are rather comprehensive. I am this. I am that. As opposed to saying, there is a part of me that when I feel afraid, begins to cower. I just, I stop talking in the room. Mm -hmm. And there's another part of me that walks into the room and grabs the talking stick and says to that part, you you just need to keep your mouth shut. So I have the part of me that is really afraid and the part of me that is condemning. And we would want to ask the question, what happened to each of those parts such that they find that this is the role that they play? When we read the 40th Psalm, we have David saying, I said to my soul, why art thou downcast? And so we have the part of David who is asking the question, and we have the part of David to whom the question is being put. Even in the Hebrew Bible, we already have examples of an awareness that we have different parts of us. And what's so beautiful about naming it in this way is that when we start to look at our attachment history, and we start to look at who was attuned to us or not, and to what degree am I attuned to any of these different parts? How many of these different parts are given the opportunity to widen the window of tolerance so that they're allowed to feel what they feel that are in the room? What's really crucially helpful about this is that it helps us take shame out of the conversation when it comes to exploring these parts of us that we carry around with us. So much of our suffering, Ruth, Mm-hmm. is bound up in our having put so many of these different parts of ourselves in some room in our house and we've locked the door and we've posted the guard to make sure that part never comes out because if they do there's going to be way too much trouble in the room think of all of our leaders who have the parts of them that are sure that they are not that they're not capable of doing the job I mean, I mean we, we know this, right? There are plenty of leaders who are leading really well, and they're leading well because there is the part of them that is cracking the whip that is saying, you better not fail today. You better not fail today. And we were like, what happened to that part of you such that that's what the position that they have to, to carry with you? And so that way of thinking about our inner life um, has been really helpful for a lot of people. We use it a lot in our practice. And I think it's just from a practical standpoint, it helps us get to some of the suffering, these, the suffering elements much more effectively. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that that's really helpful. And I think I'm just going to say you've done an amazing job of taking these huge concepts and discussing them and, and, you know, enlightening us about them in just a few minutes. But let me let me ask you to bring a finer point then to this question of how does this internal family systems idea contribute to transforming our suffering and forming a more durable hope. How do you work with those parts in such a way that, that you're now forming or allowing God to form within you a more durable hope? Because I would imagine that in the beginning, when you start to let the parts come out, you know, where there has been the sentinel at the door and that part never gets to come out, that when all the parts come out, it's pretty chaotic there for a while. Mm -hmm. And while, you know, you want those parts to come out and feel safe, they're 
ways in which those parts can behave and function that wouldn't be appropriate for you to just let them out in your leadership environment, correct? Right. So how do we work with this towards a more durable hope, but not blow up our leadership environment? in the process right well it's, and, and yeah and the gosh um well and this, this i'm asking think, for a friend by the yes. way <laughs> yeah well i and i think i think to your you 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 have in in the earlier part of our conversation in this episode the notion that we we need to have someone else who can hold mm-hmm. this for us yes our leaders who are listening to this they cannot on their own do this work this no. is not work to be done that i do this is i do my work we we do my work with you know for me we do my work for me mm-hmm. we do our work for you we do mm-hmm. this together yes. and so i think part of part of the beauty of the of the biblical narrative this whole notion let us make mankind in our image that we have a body of jesus we don't just have one we have there are the many that are coming together, this notion that we were made for community and that the community is made to hold the parts. And so you're right. I mean, I'll just give this example. A guy that I've worked with for a long time came to my office extraordinarily anxious, except when you look at his life, everything about his life looked like it was completely well put together. You didn't understand, like, why is he anxious? He's bought and sold three businesses Mm -hmm. All, all the things. And when you ask him the question, what was life like growing up in your house? And he said, I grew up in a loving Christian home, which of course is kind of code for life was, life was kind of sucky, but I just couldn't talk about it kind of thing. And then you ask the next question, who was in charge of discipline in your house? And he said, well, I guess it actually had to be my mom because when my dad would get involved... My dad, who was a deacon in the church, he would become brutal mm-hmm. because I had a sibling who was really troubled emotionally, and my sibling and my father would get into it, and all hell would break loose in the house. And my job, I guess, was to keep that from happening. And so what you have is a person who is extraordinarily gifted and effective, who has a part of him that is terrified of anger. So he can't become angry in his own work. He can't become angry at people who mistreat him, even if he's a CEO. All all the things. And so for him even to name that he's angry, I mean, Ruth, it took months Mm -hmm. for this person to be able to say the word, yeah, I'm really angry at, so whoever... Because because good Christians aren't supposed to be angry for one thing. Well, good. I mean, good Christians become. I mean, the the, the Christianese becomes a way that, it, that that's that's something that gets layered onto it. Mm-hmm. But even more fundamentally than right. that is his mm-hmm. is his embodied commitment to safety. Right. I mean, he, exactly. Like, like like anger terrifies this mm-hmm. guy. You know, and he's a guy who, if you were to walk in the room, you'd think like this guy wouldn't be afraid of anything. But there is this piece of him. And so when we invite that into the room, it's going to be important for us to have someone who can hold that for us right. because things will get messy. You're absolutely right. When the parts of us that have, feel, that have felt chaotic, which is why we have kept mm-hmm. them in the room locked up, when they come into the room, yeah, it's going to be chaotic. And I'm going to need to know that there is a person or persons who can create a container 
wherein which I can, for a period of time, lose my mind. Mm-hmm. Right. And I don't have to be afraid that the world's going to end. And to me, this is one of the most important aspects of leadership, actually, is self-leadership or taking responsibility for oneself by making sure that we're part of a group or a community or a relationship with a therapist or whatever, where this work can be done so that we're not harming other people who don't deserve to be harmed by, you know, by what's now we're, we're now becoming aware of. And I think of some of the, the leaders that we're aware of in our culture right now, who definitely had problems with unresolved anger and took it out on mm. the people in their work yeah. environment versus taking the responsibility to work on it in the places where it should be worked on. Because I'm, I'm really very concerned about this aspect of leadership, that leaders are not willing to take this self-responsibility or self-leadership. And so they take it out on the people around them versus actually doing, quote, the work, you know, mm-hmm. the work that mm-hmm. needs to be done. And so it's why you hear about places where you know it's it you can call it a meat grinder for staff or whatever because the senior leadership is taking their stuff out on the people that that can't hold it and carry it and work on it with you that way right right and i I think there there it it is therein that you see and and uh you know when you hear about this or when you see it on public display like you can point to that and say that leader's behavior certainly the staff's experience of that that leader's behavior is evidence of the suffering that they carry mm-hmm. yes. that they have not that they have not named. My mm-hmm. my patient, he would say that his suffering was the intense anxiety that he was bringing into the office to be treated. Mm-hmm. And we would say, actually, your anxiety is not your suffering. Your anxiety is a signal about that your you suffering. are suffering. Yes, and your suffering is this grief and this rage that you have to that you have to bind up. And carry within you and somehow your body and what your your anxiety is doing is it is your body saying i'm no longer going to do that mm-hmm. i'm done doing that i need you to get some help i need us mm-hmm. to get some help and and therein this is why i think again internal family systems can be helpful because my 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 patient would say i don't want to become my dad mm-hmm. i'm afraid i'm going to become my dad if I let this part of me that's angry into the room and we say, well, you're not angry. You have a part of you that's angry. Mm-hmm. We can say that you're not going to become your dad because it's just a part of you that you're actually taking action about. Mm-hmm. So you're, you're aware talking. of. Yes, right. you're aware right. of it. Right. Right. And so naming these, uh, using this, this parts language is really helpful at doing, you know, in our, after our first episode, we, we talked about the exercise of naming our suffering. It is a way for us to name parts of us that are suffering in ways that then lead to really important tactical interventions for those parts of us that are in that position of suffering. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, friends, we want to take a break from our conversation and talk a little bit about Transforming Community 20, which is coming up in April. The first retreat of TC20 is coming up in April. And we've had a a huge theme running through this season about the importance of community for real transformation, and particularly as it has to do with a community that's able to be present with suffering and with our suffering without trying to fix us, without trying to problem solve, without trying to tell us what to do with our suffering, but to just be a witness to 
who are suffering. And this is something that the transforming community is particularly good at. In the way that we structure our conversations, we make sure that we are putting an emphasis on being present to one another in whatever it is that we're going through versus fixing and problem solving and telling each other what to do. And so if this is uh, the kind of community that you as a leader know that you need, uh, if you need some place to go outside of your leadership context to be with people that you can journey with just as a soul in God's presence, Transforming Community is for you. And so in April, we're beginning the next Transforming Community and we won't be starting another one until 2026. And so if you know you need this kind of a community to be healthy and whole and to keep moving on your spiritual journey. We invite you to discern and to consider Transforming Community 20. If you have any inkling at all to apply, then use the code PODCAST20 and receive $50 off your application fee. So we'll be watching for you, and we're also here standing ready to help you discern whether this opportunity is the right thing for you at this time. So... With these, you know, sort of psychological underpinnings, these foundational pieces that help us to know how to journey with with our suffering as as we become more aware and are willing to name and acknowledge our suffering. Let's talk about the body a little bit, because mm-hmm. you are very, very much in, in your book clear about the fact that this is an embodied process. So one of the things that we believe in so deeply in the Transforming Center and that you and I, Kurt, believe together is that there's this integration that needs to happen. So mm-hmm. our psychology, mm-hmm. our spirituality, our relational world and all of that. But now let's talk about the body mm-hmm. uh, and how do we bring the body into this journey of 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 having hope formed in us. Yeah. Well, I I think I've been, this is where interpersonal neurobiology has been really helpful for me. And also the work of Hans Urs von Balthasar in in his kind of theological and philosophical take on the way we humans engage the world. This, what we like to say in our world of neuroscience is that as humans, first we sense, and then we make sense of what we sense. Yes. We don't first encounter the world by thinking about the world. We only think about the world once we've seen it, heard it, felt it, tasted it, sensed it on our skin, whatever these things, felt it in our chest, in my abdomen. Then I'm going to make sense of that. I'm going to tell a story of this. This is what newborns, infants, and toddlers are doing. It's their full-time job. (laughs) Their full-time job is to make sense of what they sense. Yeah. And... For the most part, until they get to be about two or three, they don't have the language piece, as far as we can tell, that helps them make the kind of sense that we adults do. But they are physically making sense of what they're sensing all the time. You watch the toddler who's trying to stand and then to walk. They are literally, you watch, their, they are with their body making sense of what they're sensing, trying to take the step, falling over, getting up, trying again, all these things that they're doing. This process never stops. We are doing this with our bodies until we are dead Mm -hmm. at age 87. The thing is that we become such, we are such thinking and wordy creatures that we really think that the essence of life is my thinking life. And we forget in Genesis 2-7 that God begins with mud. He begins with an embodied self. And he then breathes the spirit of God. 
such that we become living souls. And so it's crucial for us to be aware at any given time of how much our bodies are telling us not just about the world that is coming to us from outside of our skin, but how much our bodies are telling us about ourselves that are coming to us from within inside our skin. Mm-hmm. What's important about this when it comes to suffering is kind of housed in a question that we often ask our patients when we say, what are you feeling? I'm feeling anxious. The next question is, where do you feel it? Mm-hmm. Where is it happening? Yeah. It's my jaw to my chest, to my abdomen. At which point, we don't, you know, we don't then say, well, what's making you anxious? What are you thinking about? Those things are not unimportant, but we first say, okay, we're going to pause. Take two two deep breaths, close your eyes. We should put your hand on your abdomen, your other hand on your chest. We're just going to breathe for the next two or three minutes together. And it is stunning what people will begin to report about how their anxiety is mitigated because of their attunement. There's that word again, Mm -hmm. their attunement to their body. But of course, they didn't do that just by themselves. They had someone else, an external brain, help them begin to practice doing this. And once they begin to name that, then they can, with greater comfort and confidence, begin to name their feelings and the story associated with it without being elevated in their affect and they become more receptive than in that state, they become more receptive to empathy. And so our bodies then are crucial also then when it comes to suffering to name, where do I hold my suffering Mm -hmm. in my body? Where do I hold it? Because so much of how I suffer actually takes place because of how I have chosen to hold my suffering in my very physicality without knowing that that's what I'm doing. Why do I have headaches? Why do I have low back pain? Why do I have OCD? Like that is an, we say, well, that's a mental thing, right? But it's taking place because you have an overactive portion of your prefrontal cortex, (laughs) right? It's an embodied phenomenon. Yeah. That is, that is often largely associated with unresolved grief. It's suffering. Mm-hmm. And so the more we're actually able, when, when, we, when Paul talks about the grace in which we now stand, he could have used all kinds of metaphors. But instead, we're really talking about something that I long to feel in my chest. The grace that we, again, you, you know, therefore, since you've been justified by faith, it's a lovely theological construct. Yeah, but who knows what it means, right? <laughs> right. What does that mean? And here would be the question for our listeners. I would be curious to know, when you hear that phrase, where do you feel it in your body? And if your answer is, I don't know what you're talking about, we would exp- that, that would be kind of typical. Because, like, that's, what's that got to do with the body? It has everything to do with attachment. Because this is what faith, this is what trust is about. It has to do with this sense of am I being seen, soothed, safe, that kind of justification, that theological phenomenon, that legal definition. If I don't feel it in my chest, it's not yet really real to me. And if the suffering that I'm experiencing is not identified in terms of my body, 
then I can't take the action that addresses it in my body either. Hmm. So I have a question for you. All right. And, you know, I, I am, uh, I'm, I'm aware that, you know, the work that we do, we invite people to pay attention to their physicality in their endeavor to be curious about the story that they're telling. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes people often wonder, like, what's my body got to do with yeah. the story that I'm talking about? What's it got to do with mm-hmm. what I'm really curious about for the work that you're doing at the Transforming Center with, with your cohort members, but in particular for leaders, mm-hmm. how do you see this attention to the embodiment that we've been exploring? How do you see that playing a role for them? What, what, and, and especially, what makes it difficult for leaders mm-hmm. to be attuned to these things that are so fundamental to what it means for us to be mm-hmm. human? That's a really good question, and I really appreciate it because in our nine retreat series, we do have a whole retreat on the body called Flesh and Blood Spirituality, Mm -hmm. um, and how to, number one, experience our bodies as a gift, but then we go far beyond that as well um, to talk about some of these most difficult experiences that we've had in our bodies, especially around gender, sexuality, and race. But in the very early part of that retreat, we do talk about false dichotomies that have been created in, in religious environments, both Catholic and Christian, Protestant Christian. So in the Jewish tradition or the Hebraic tradition, tradition, there was no such false dichotomy. They saw the whole person as including all aspects of the person, and that the body and soul were one and unified. But in Catholic Christian tradition, we have actually fostered a certain kind of false dichotomy between the material world and the and the spiritual world, the body and the soul, and things like that. And so one of the early things we do um, with our leaders is to help them move beyond that because especially when you're a leader who's been trained in seminary and all of that there's often been a, a false bifurcation between the body and the soul the material and the physical and then you add sexuality in there and then there's this deep deep fear that we have about our passion and about the the passions that we feel the longings and desires that we feel in our bodies that that we often sexualize and so you know it's a setup for not paying attention to our bodies. I think the very preparation of pastors and leaders for leadership contributes to a false bifurcation Mm. around life in our bodies and life in our spirits. So we seek to actually dismantle that right off the bat. Mm-hmm. And to mm-hmm. sort of bring an integration there that's that's mm-hmm. really, really important. And to make it to make the community, the transforming community, a safe place to pay attention not just to what's happening, quote, spiritually, but mm-hmm. also to what's mm-hmm. happening in our bodies and offer mm-hmm. real exercises around that, like biospiritual focusing, which I'm sure you're you're familiar with, mm-hmm. where we take time take time to be present to a place of discomfort in our lives and invite people to pay attention to where that discomfort is in the body and then to bring Mm -hmm. loving attention to that in our bodies. And for many people, it's the first time they've ever done that. And then when we debrief what actually happened, one of the things that we hear over and over again is, number one, that people have never been invited into that kind of an exercise. But Mm -hmm. then number two, that giving loving attention and curiosity to that place in the body where the suffering or the discomfort is being held actually shifts something. It actually shifts something just by paying attention. And I think that's what you're describing, right? Sorry. Is it just by giving it your attention, a shift might happen or an awareness that the body knows things. Mm-hmm. I like to talk about the body as almost a tuning fork for the divine that actually were created, according to Deuteronomy 30, as a place where we actually have a sense of what's li- what, what is life and what is death to us. And we hear God inviting us 
to pay attention in the body when God says through Moses to the Israelites, it's not across the it's not across the ocean that you should have to go across the ocean to get it. It's not up in the heavens that you should have to go to the heavens to get it. No, it is in your mouth and it is in your heart for you to observe that that there's this visceral experience of God speaking within our bodies as tuning forks for the divine, for discernment, to know what's really going on. I've been given my body as a gift that is designed to help me to know things I would not otherwise know. Mm-hmm. So I am so passionate about this um, and love the way you described it and how you brought even more to our understanding yeah. of that. Well, I, I, just, I, I, I love your description of what happens when people attune mm-hmm. to things and that the very act of attunement itself creates opportunity for healing and freedom. That's right. In many respects, it's not unlike the very thing that happens anytime a newborn or an infant is in distress and the parent attunes to the child. The child will respond long, whatever is distressing the child, the child's first response is to the attunement, mm-hmm. not yes. even to content. It's not about content. Yeah. Right. And so that whole notion of attunement is uh, a beautiful thing for us to pay attention to when you have to go looking for these parts of us where the suffering is embedded. Mm -hmm. I think the other thing that's really important, too, is that many people who have been Christians for a long time are raised in a religious environment and then have trained also then to, to move into the pastorate or something like that. There can all also be an outside of consciousness feeling that the body is evil and mm. that the body is mm. full of just temptation and especially the strength of our sexuality as it wakes up, that there's a sense that, man, I can't pay attention to my body because my body is where I experience my sexuality and my passion. Mm. And that's really scary for me. And nobody ever told me how to deal with that. I might act mm-hmm. out on it. I mean, there's all these this fear that is bound up in the lives of leaders. Like if I really do acknowledge my body and live within my body, it's just going to lead me down a path I, I should not go. Mm-hmm. And so there's even a healing, if I could even put it this way, Kurt, what we see is that there is a need for a healing of the relationship between me and my body. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, for many, totally. many Christians, there, there's a, a healing that needs to take place as it has to do with my body before I can even do the kinds of things that you suggested. Yeah. I have to have a different understanding of what, what my body actually is and the gift that it is for knowing, the gift that it is for healing, the gift that it is for discerning god's presence and god's activity mm-hmm. that it's not primarily a place of evil it's right. actually deeply deeply good as a part of god's good creation and that's a big right. shift for some people right yeah it may yeah very very much is yeah. I, I love that those are things that you're talking about in the work of the transforming center uh because so often things about the body uh in our world have been kind of relegated to the realms of science Mm -hmm. those things the the realms of how we know things by being able to measure them scientifically and it's such a beautiful thing to hear that you're wading into that and talking about that and grappling with that in this realm that is inviting people to hear 
how delighted God is that we are embodied creatures. Mm -hmm. Yes, and how God meets us in these temples. And one of the things we talk about is the fact that the only place we hear that verse about, you know, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, that the only place that churches tend to talk about that verse has to do with sexual abstinence for for the young people. Like it's a youth Mm. talk, you know, that don't do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Mm. Wow, but to think about what a temple is, a temple Mm -hmm. is a place of prayer, a temple is a place of encounter with God, it's a place that we go to to actually experience an encounter with the divine Mm -hmm. and then to shift and think that's my body my body is a place of encounter with god it's an actual temple it's sacred for for divine encounter is also a very elevating and healing idea if we can bring it down into the realm of our real experience in our bodies right and I i think it's also you know in the same way that um we like to say that evil does its best work in the middle of good work being done Mm -hmm. which is why it's not so surprising that so many painful hard things uh that evil does happens in the church we would say this is also why the body given its being made good being made beautiful is also the very place where our suffering is housed Mm -hmm. even if that suffering is not primarily medical even if that suffering is not primarily and first and foremost a physical thing we don't ever experience our suffering in a way that is not in some way, shape, or form embodied. Yes. Yeah. The body holds all the memories yeah. of what's happened in our lives. Well, this has been a delightful conversation. I've loved every single minute of it. And uh, for those of you who um, would like to know more about how we can practice some of these things, we're going to go over to Patreon and you can join us there. And Kurt's going to actually share with us an exercise that combines uh, this understanding of internal family systems with a breathing practice that can help us to do the work. Remember, we are doing the work over on Patreon, and we invite you to join us there. So if you'd like to join us for our exercise where we're going to be doing the work, uh, you can join us on patreon.com slash transformingcenter, or you can go to our show notes, and the link is right there for you. So thanks again, Kurt, for such a thoughtful and this time substantive conversation in terms of that uh, teaching that you've given us around some of these key psychological concepts. And we look forward to next week with you as we continue our journey of talking about the formation of hope in the midst of our suffering. Indeed. Thanks so much, Ruth. Ruth.